Hello. Welcome to Kind Soundwaves Meditation. I'm your meditation guru master, Inagata Devita. Let's begin by closing your eyes and taking a deep breath. Okay. Kind Soundwaves is an experimental show. In between segments of the conversation with Little Karibo today, we will take short breaks. Now lift your arms into the air and feel the energy flow from the sky, through your arms, down your back, and out of your butt. The breaks are sort of like commercial breaks. Commercials for your mind. Now bend over and touch your toes. Straighten your back and hold this until it feels like you're about to puke. That's good. This show is an audio scrapbook featuring a variety of content, including music, audio, speeches, and other clips. Now, transition to the lotus position. Pull your hands together towards your chest. Take a deep breath. Actually, I do smoke marijuana. It's good stuff. that some people do where they take a complete episode of a TV show or movie and chop it up and insert their own dialogue. This is called fan dubbing and sometimes abridging. KnowYourMeme.com explains a bridge series like this. A bridge series is a subgenre of video parody that involves narrating a condensed version of popular media and often poking fun at the faulty or unconventional premise and plot lines found in said media. Abridged parodies are especially popular with cartoons and anime series due to their simplistic and easy-to-dub nature. I would add to that that abridged parodies are easiest and most common among TV shows that stylistically take themselves seriously, and that narrows out a lot of Western animation due to the fact that most of it is comedy already. And you can't make a parody of something unless it takes itself seriously. The word abridged to describe this type of work today is broadly used in common parlance thanks to the guest on this episode, uh, Little Karibo. He created Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged in 2006 and ushered in a wave of like-minded fans who used the concept of editing down their favorite shows and slapping the word abridged on the title, the most famous example of which, Dragon Ball Z Abridged. Many of you already know this, I know. I'm just simply laying down the groundwork to kind of expand on that a little bit. Uh, TheArtifice.com has an article written by Eric G. that chronicles the history of a bridge series, and I'm going to read a few snippets from that. And, of course, if you want the full page, uh, the link will be in the description. So here we goes. Anime fandom has produced countless derivative works over the years. One of the most common is the anime music video, AMV, which features clips from a particular anime playing over a song in the background. There is also the fan dub, which is what it sounds like, a fan-made dub of an anime. 
But perhaps the most popular fan work in recent years is the abridged series, a particular type of fan dub that strives not to perfectly capture the spirit of the original Japanese script, but rather to poke fun at the series. Expect flaws in the original show to be referenced here and characters to be misinterpreted. Depending on your definition of the term, it's debatable what the first abridged series is. True, Yu-Gi-Oh! The Abridged Series was the first to use the abridged series label, but before it was uploaded to YouTube, there was an ADV dub of Ghost Story which was released in 2005. The original Japanese dub of Ghost Stories was apparently so bad that the localizers turned what was supposed to be an innocent children's show into a raunchy comedic show aimed at adults and making fun of the original material. However, various gag dubs of cartoons and films were floating around before the internet years prior to the release of Ghost Stories. Movies like Mortal Kombat and The Matrix Reloaded were humorously dubbed over by an artist named Knox on Newgrounds.com in 2003. A profanity-laced parody, very not safe for work, contains jokes about sexual assault. Of the 1990s X-Men cartoon was released in 2005, and Fensler Films' gag dub of the G.I. Joe PSAs predates both of them, surfacing on the net in 2003. All of these productions were reasonably popular and fulfilled the criteria for what an abridged series is. And so I want to stop there and add a little bit to the history of dubbing over films and changing the plotline goes. I think even further back... There's the popular 2002 movie Kung Pao by Steve Odenkirk, which is a movie comprised of a parody dub over footage of The Savage Killers from 1976. There were other movies like it, but probably the first was What's Up Tiger Lily by Woody Allen from 1966, which takes the Japanese spy film International Secret Police Key of Keys and parody dubs it, changing the plot completely. So all of this is to say that Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged was really just a continuation of a very long tradition of remixing other media. So what was it that made Yu-Gi-Oh! abridged so special. Well, that's what Little Karibo and I explore in the conversation today. I was fascinated by this practice, and I actually explored it myself. Many people have seen my abridged series that I co-created with my friend Remix, Dub of the North Star, on the YouTube channel Weekly Tube Show. I know the ins and outs of the whole practice, and that's why I've taken out a few episodes of Kind Sound Waves to talk about and explore different abridged series. So it was a great treat to have the guy who basically started the whole trend uh, on to talk about it. I really think this practice is a great way to learn editing software, to learn how to write comedy, working with others creatively, and voice acting. There's just so much that goes into it that involves real marketable skills, so it's wonderful that there's a thriving online community for it. It really gives people the power to learn how to even create new things that are not derivative works at all. Uh, so without any more waiting, I give you little Karibo. And here he is describing his early interactions with the internet. <laughs> actually I think the only kid in my class uh, for a, a good two or three years who didn't have access to the internet uh, for a long time so the internet to me until I think around 1999 was this really like strange like it was an unattainable thing it was mm-hmm. a thing that I would never personally experience the closest I came to really having any access to the internet during my school life was when we would do um, uh, the the IT class when we would like um, go online to to right. do research for an essay that we were writing we would have access to the the IT lab uh, but it was limited access so I, I the way I'd had everything uh-huh. drilled into me I wasn't allowed to really go exploring it was just a very specific path that was set in front of me so when my family ultimately got the internet uh, in our in our home I. I immediately just started exploring, and uh, I was big into uh, Mystery Science 33,000 at the time, 
Uh, it, it actually didn't come out in the UK until 1998. And uh, I was browsing TV and I went on the Sci-Fi channel and Mystery Science Theater 3000 was there and that was my obsession for a good two years. I know you're home. Where are you? You know, it's economical not to have a storyline because then you can just film people saying things. <laughs> hey, it's Don Imus. No, not scary enough for Don you right now. He's almost as hairy as Robin Williams. I'm not holding back anything. Certainly not talent. <laughs> Uh, well, it, I'm still, I still love the show, but it, I was obsessed with it at this time. And so when I got the internet, I went on ms3k.com and I found forums and I mm. found chat rooms and I was like, whoa, there are people who are just as excited about this stuff as I am. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember getting an, I an IRC chat uh, on the Sci-Fi Channel website and, and just talking to people. And I remember somebody had a bot in one of the, the MST3K chat rooms. And every so often, if I would say something funny during one of the either the scheduled event chats that they would have during the episode, when they would show them on TV or just in casual chat, they, they would start adding my quotes to this bot. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, this, this is crazy to the point where you could press, you could type like exclamation mark quote and it would quote a random thing. And seeing myself being quoted in this chat room was just such like, it, it, I got a little thrill about it and I would jump, I would jump up in my chair and I'd, I'd rush out to talk to my mom and be like, the, the bot in the chat room just said what I said. And, and she'd be like, what? And I'd be like, never mind. It's kind of <laughs> so, like a, uh, a foreshadowing for what happened later with the, yeah. <laughs> As I was saying, I was like, people quoting my stuff. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, you're Anime, um, the, I mean, I actually got into anime, uh, strangely, like, uh, quite a while before it in uh, primary school. I, I forget exactly how I was introduced to it, but uh, I, I know somebody was passing around VHS tapes, and uh, Tenchi Mio was one of them. Uh, oh, no, not Tenchi, it was uh, New Dominion Tank Police. And uh, yeah, my first my first really? real introduction to anime was New Dominion Tank Police, not the original <laughs> Dominion Tank Police, but the New Dominion. And uh, I remember just being like, "Wow, this is a crazy, cool concept for a for a universe where crime has just gotten so out of control that they have to use tanks on the streets to to really <laughs> suppress the the criminal." Uh, yeah, it was it was um, it, it was just so outlandish. Let's blow those bitches away. I remember being like, wow, a lot of these women uh, don't wear many clothes. What's right, going on? Yeah. <laughs> I was just, as a 12-year-old, that's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was, I was, I was intrigued, and uh, I started just uh, watching what, what little I could access. I remember uh, we had Manga Mania was uh, the magazine that I, I uh, briefly subscribed to um, back in the day, and I, I remember getting really into the, some of the manga more than the anime, actually. Uh, Gunsmith Cats was was a favorite of mine, oh, the, the manga one. specifically. Uh, but then I, I ended up buying the VHS uh, anime uh, for myself, and I remember being shocked at how expensive it was, because it was like, you got one episode per VHS, and it was uh -huh. three VHS tapes, because it was three episode OVA, and it was like 20 pounds for each one, and that's 60 Oof. pounds for three episodes. Yeah. But I thought it was worth it, because it was just like, I'm, I'm so into this show and this, this idea. 
Uh, well, but, Guns, the animation of Gunsmith Cats is really, really nice. Like, it really that is, is a really good looking show. It's beautiful. Like I, I mean, yeah. I, I have reservations about like some of the aspects of the plot. I think it's got kind of a shallow plot in the in the OVA, but be- it's yeah. beautiful to look at. It really is. And that, yeah. I, I ended up watching Riding Bean as a result of that because I was big into both <laughs> the manga and the anime. And uh, yeah, I love Riding Bean. Uh, but. Uh, and I watched Tenchi Mio as well in the 90s. I remember being very big into that just because it was it was on late night on the sci-fi channel. They had like yeah. a, a three-hour period after midnight when they would show anime completely uncut. I remember right before the first episode of Tenchi I watched, no, right after, they had Devilman. Uh, I don't remember which like iteration of Devilman it was, but it was so hardcore and so violent. And I was like, this is, this is crazy. Like this anime stuff, you go from like, quirky romance to like hardcore de- demons fighting each other and I was like what is going on this anime <laughs> stuff is, is like is so cool and um, eventually <laughs> I went from all that uh, to Yu-Gi-Oh uh, yeah. I, um, I remember watching it because I was trying to watch Pokemon long ago when the pyramids were still young Egyptian kings played a game of great and terrible uh, just tuning into the end of an episode of, of Yu-Gi-Oh! right before Pokemon came up, mm-hmm. and uh, being like, why are these guys screaming at each other about this this trading card game? Consider yourself Dinosaur Chow! Oh, and Raptor plays the strongest card in his deck, the terrible two-headed King Rex! Looks like this match could be over right here, right now! Because my, my, my only introduction to Yu-Gi-Oh! before that had been seeing a poster for the movie or whatever. It had Yami Yu-Gi on it, I remember that. Yeah. And being like, that is that is a ridiculous character design. Why <laughs> why does he look like that? Yeah. Why can how can anybody take this seriously? <laughs> We're back, monster fans. And with the two-headed King Rex in play, it looks like this duel is all done. And uh, I, I scoffed at it and I was like, what why would anybody waste their time watching this? And then I found myself tuning in like half an hour earlier than I would to watch Pokemon just to catch an entire episode of, of, I think at the time it was like season two of Yu-Gi-Oh! 5,000 years ago, a powerful pharaoh locked the magic of the shadow games away. What's this have to do with me? The pharaoh captured these vast magical energies in seven mystical millennium items. Seven items? And I was like, what, what is happening here? Who are these people? And so as a result of being so intrigued, I went on to Yu-Gi-Oh!.com where they had the first, I think, five episodes to watch for free streaming. I, I, I just became really enthralled with, with the show and the characters. And the, the only way I know how is to become completely obsessed with something for, for, for as long as I can. And then as, as, soon as, I, as soon as I drift away from it, it's gone. You know, <laughs> that's, that's how I am with a lot of yeah. things. But I was obsessed with Yu-Gi-Oh! Hey, Joey! Earth to Joey! Hey, are you in there? It's your turn. Oh, isn't he cute when he's thinking? Hey, Tristan, Yugi here's teaching me how to play dual monsters. Drooling monsters? Dual monsters, you Nimrod. <sighs> Sheesh. They've been at it for hours. Joey's starting to get kind of... Uh, so when did you, uh, I've read interviews with you before where you've uh, talked about your real beginning with uh, working on creative work online was writing fan fiction. So I'm curious to know, um, there's a there's a, a large crossover in in the uh, sort of fan fiction and the abridging 
doing comedy fan dubs writing. There's a lot of uh, the same sort of um, inspiration, I think, to get involved in both of those. Mm. those And I do think that that ultimately an abridged video is a sort of fanfic in a way. Uh, It's just taking those characters and doing your own thing with them, which is, you know, that's the heart of a fanfic ultimately. Um, My initial run of fan fiction was about Tenchi Muyo. Uh, In particular, I was was very interested. I don't know how much people know about Tenchi Muyo out there who are listening, but there's a character called Washu. And uh, she's mm-hmm. sort of an enigmatic character uh, who has uh, in the in the original uh, Ryooki series, she has a she's got a very um, her past is sort of shrouded in mystery, and there's a lot of hints as to who she is and what why she's important. Uh, I was invested in her, and I I I I found right. a strange connection to her. And I would just I wrote a lot of fan fiction specifically to deal with things that I was going through. So it was sort of a way for you to put these feelings down and, and explore them uh, in a way that helped you understand it a little more, I suppose. Huh? And in a safe way as well, because if, if I were to try right. some of the things that she might have tried, I probably would have ended up ended up exacerbating things. But I could I could allow her to go through that and and hurt, but then grow from it. And it made me think twice about what the way i was feeling emotionally and and you know how i was healing from it and everything so it it, it was definitely helpful for me to do that yeah uh yugioh fan fiction i've written uh i I, i've written one about yugi dying that i never finished that i I ended up making a lot of friends as a result of writing that one uh pre uh i think yugioh abridged uh, just because uh, a a lot i I don't know what it is but a, a lot of people uh really connected with this story which was it was just yugi walking alone uh through uh like an empty forest uh by a river and it was just his thoughts and and his meandering thoughts about being confused and being alone and and ultimately learning that he died and that he just didn't remember his death and a lot of people connected with it and i ended up even meeting a number of people in real life as a result of that story uh that unfortunately I, i haven't really had as much chance to interact with since but uh, it was really, it was really meaningful to me that that you know that I'd even connected with anybody like that just by putting that out there, you know. After the break, Little Karibo talks about YouTube and Yu-Gi-Oh abridged. But for now, Jason Silva, and then some music. In biology, when there's a mutation, and that mutation is expressed in the organism, and it turns out to improve that organism's capacities to survive, then that ends up being a good idea. That organism will replicate more widely than others, and that idea will spread. That's biological evolution. Now, with cultural evolution, we went from trading in genes that were good ideas to trading in memes that hopefully are good ideas. We've also empowered individuals all over the world to disseminate their memes at the speed of light. This makes us a 
crucial players now in what's going to happen in the future. Like, we are now the number one replicators of ideas that can transform the world, and we've usurped biological evolution with this cultural evolution. The membrane of mind that has overcome the planet is one in which ideas are literalized through technology, through transformation, through all the things that mankind has done as a force of geology. So ideas matter. And so what are the ideas that you're going to spread into the world? What are you going to pay forward? What is the possibility? What are the good vibes? What are the grand visions that you are going to utter into the ether sphere, into the mind sphere? And this is something that all of us should be thinking about every single time we tweet or share or post or publish. We're co-writing the future story. We decide what happens. Money, 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 Summers on Mars. Twenty motherfuckers in a levitating car. Seven forty-seven full of women and cigars. Get money. Money in a motherfucking pot. A castle full of cars and a yard full of yachts. Eleven with a mink and an arm full of clocks. All hand wound every day by a spot. Get money. Put it in my fridge or in one of my parks that I bought so my robots could learn how to lock. Get money, 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 talk one time about the beginning of working with video editing software in Yu-Gi-Oh! You had done a, a dubbed clip of I Am Alan Partridge. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, yesterday, I uh, sort of trod in a rather large farmer's pat when I made some comments about um, intensive farming. I, I remember specifically yeah. in that video, uh, whenever there was a pause in conversation, because there was a laugh track for this show, so I would have to have mm -hmm. the characters stop speaking and just stare at each other. 
and the way to do that was I would take a screen cap and just take uh, and uh, Windows Movie Maker let you just like say drag this uh, across the clip and then uh, frame it with the two animated parts. But as a result of taking a screenshot, the dimensions were slightly different. So every time there was a pause, the characters would stretch. They'd get a little bit fatter. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> Tripping about my friends. Yeah, I've I, 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 I probably got more friends than you've got cows. How many? How many? Ridiculous. How many cows have you got? I've got a hundred cows. Yeah, I've got a hundred and four friends. And, and AMVs too were pretty popular at the time. And there were other fan dubs, but Yu-Gi-Oh! Bridge was the first one to be called something abridged. So I think that what you did by by creating something like that was you you made it instantly recognizable what it was, and it was like a concept that people could latch on very easily to. So I'm curious to to know sort of what led you to start that what what some of your early thoughts were if you'd ever considered other names stuff like that with uh in regards to Yu-Gi-Oh bridge uh it's a good question i don't think i ever had any other name for it i think it was just uh Yu-Gi-Oh the abridged hey, series are you in there it's your move sorry you doing this brooklyn accent makes it difficult to concentrate on card games the the strange thing is i never even considered that it would be a real like fully fledged series i think i i just was like hey if, if this is a way to differentiate it from say a fan dub or say uh, the actual show youtube was less than a year old at the time and and people were putting up whatever popped into their head like it was it was the wild west you know every, anything went mm -hmm. and um i i remember just thinking i mean the reason i did Yu-Gi-Oh! abridged in the first place was just because I wanted to take part in the fandom. I, I, I dabbled in fan fiction, I, but I hadn't really dipped my toe like into any of like the the big like live journal communities because at the time that was really the the what I what I knew of as like the 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 focus of the community was it was the live journal stuff like people would go on and role play as the characters and they they'd talk about the characters and one one community in particular play the damn card was de was dedicated specifically to like i i think at the time and i don't know if the, f the phrase has uh, disappeared uh the crack aspect of the f the the fandom uh like just coming up with like zany situations and like screen caps with like fake subtitles and stuff right right yeah Re really like silly stuff uh-huh and uh i posted that first alan partridge video and that was sort of my my this was my test to see if i could even rip the footage correctly and uh, I didn't really do it correctly, but I did it correctly enough that people en could still enjoy it despite its shortcomings. Hey, Gramps, can we please see your super rare, awesome, chocolatey, fudge-coated mega supercard? I don't see why not. Here it is, the Blue Eyes White Dragon. That's the least threatening name for a monster I've ever heard. But uh, the, the abridged thing, I, I, that was like my dabbling in seeing if I could make a video in the first place. And then abridged, uh, the abridged series was like... I mean, it, it, like like I said before, it may as well be a fanfic because there are lots of uh, fanfics out there where it's like, hey, this is the same episode that just aired, but what if the characters were my versions of the characters? You know, what if they what if they mm -hmm. broke the fourth wall? And and sometimes people will just take characters from a show and they'll have them act out an episode from a different show. I remember uh, reading a Sailor Moon fanfic back in the day, which was just the first episode of C Lab twenty twenty one but with the Sailor Moon characters saying the lines. And I remember seeing people re re like review it being like, this is brilliant. These characterizations are amazing. And I was like, what? That's just C-Lab. <laughs> but um, I, I remember thinking, 
I, I could write this, but I could also act it out. So I, I wrote like uh, just a short, like, I just wanted to see if I could do the voices effectively and even in the first episode. And, and, and if it was funny, that was a bonus. And I was like, look, I, I just want to do something that shows that I, I, I really enjoy Yu-Gi-Oh! I really enjoy the show. And the show had just, I think, ended in Japan. So I was like, how about we go back to the beginning and we just we, we, we tell the story of the first episode? Because in my opinion, and I've said this to a lot of people, that first episode of Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged, I, I said all I needed to say in that first episode. That, that first episode is a parody of Yu-Gi-Oh! in general more than it's a parody of the first episode. I'm here for you, blue eyes old man, and I won't take no for an answer. Now give it to me. No curses foiled again. I'm going to go hire some thugs to kidnap you now. I'm a billionaire, so nobody will even think about pressing charges. the break, Martin goes in-depth on his comedic influences, his position on the debate over reference jokes, creating characters, using existing characters, and finally, catchphrases and memes. But for now, a little information about YouTube's copyright system. There are a lot of people out there who don't know how it works. It's very interesting. So if you're in the audience today, or maybe you're watching this talk in some other time or place, you are a participant in the digital rights ecosystem. And whether you're an artist, a technologist, a lawyer, or a fan, the handling of copyright directly impacts your life. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, Two years ago, recording artist Chris Brown released the official video of his single, Forever. A fan saw it on TV, recorded it with her camera phone, and uploaded it to YouTube. Now, because Sony Music had registered Chris Brown's video in our content ID system, within seconds of attempting to upload the video, the copy was detected, giving Sony the choice of what to do next. Well, most rights owners, instead of blocking, will allow the copy to be published, and then they benefit through the exposure, advertising, and linked sales. Remember Chris Brown's video, Forever? Well, it had its day in the sun, and then it dropped off the charts, and that looked like the end of the story. But sometime last year, a young couple got married. This is their wedding video. You may have seen it. What's amazing about this is if the processional of the wedding was this much fun, can you imagine how much fun the reception must have been? I mean, who are these people? I totally want to go to that wedding. So their little wedding video went on to get over 40 million views. And instead of Sony blocking, they allowed the upload to occur, and they put advertising against it and linked from it to iTunes. And the song, 18 months old, went back to number four on the iTunes charts. So why has no one ever solved this problem before? It's because it's a big problem, and it's complicated and messy. It's not uncommon for a single video to have multiple rights owners. There's musical labels, there's multiple music publishers, and each of these can vary by country. And there's lots of cases where we have more than one work mashed together, so we have to manage many claims to the same video. Can't beat my, can't beat my, no they can beat my Brooklyn rage. By simply blocking all reuse, you'll miss out on new art forms, new audiences, new distribution channels, and new revenue streams. But it's not just about dollars and impressions. Just look at all the joy that was spread through progressive rights management and new technology. My sister's side is on the line, I gotta win. They'll learn to run soon as they see my creepy chin. I'm scary. Russian roulette is not the same without a gun. But since we're done by four kids, we must...
I'm interested in, in sort of talking about writing and comedic influences. I know that you've talked about MST3K, and I can I could definitely see some of that in Yu-Gi-Oh! Bridge. Just sort of the the dry sarcasm, and the and then C Lab 2020. I think you've mentioned before, uh, and I, I don't know if Alan Partridge ended up uh, influencing your comedic style, but what sort of um, shows and, and comedy did you really get into uh, in your early years, and, and what do you think sort of influenced the way that you approach comedy when you're writing Yu-Gi-Oh? Early on, uh, I'd say a, a very strong influence uh, on me uh, for my whole life, strangely, uh, and I'm, I'm proud to say it, but Beavis and Butthead uh, was definitely mm-hmm. a big influence, and, and you can kind of tell uh, just from first of all, the amount of beavers and butthead jokes that I put in Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged, I think, right, is more right, yeah. more than anyone would ever put in a Yu-Gi-Oh! parody that, that, that if they <laughs> hadn't been influenced by it. Uh, but I, I watched Beavis and Butthead. Uh, that was my first adult cartoon, I think, uh, outside of anime uh, that I watched. <laughs> Nipple rings are cool. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get one. <laughs> so I started religiously watching Beavis and Butthead whenever I could, uh, to the point that I was like, I, w- I would start doing the voices uh, at school, and it would get a reaction from people. Even if they had no idea who Beavis and Butthead were, they, they were sort of uh, interested and, in, in, uh, 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 like, incredulous that these voices were coming from the same person. And I was surprised when I learned that Mike Judge voiced, I want to say, 90% of the voices on that mm-hmm. show, which is yeah. incredible. And, and he also wrote... Uh, like pretty much all the episodes as well and i i uh i was just very taken by that i was very i was very uh interested in the idea of one person being the 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 actor the the writer the director the the brains behind everything and uh i always sort of stored that in my head um i uh I, i actually remember writing an essay for history class with Beavis and Butthead as characters in it so that when I was called to read it in front of the class, everybody else, when they read theirs, they they would read it and nobody was paying attention. Nobody was listening. It was just an exercise we were going through to prove that we'd done the work. But when I stood right. in front of the class and I started doing these voices, everyone sat up and everyone started laughing. And it was a very, it was a hesitant reaction at first. But then the, the further I got in, uh, people were like really like like reacting to it visibly and the, the teacher was like even laughing along and I was like this actually th- this did something I took the idea that had been presented to me and I I added jokes and I added these characters that were recognizable and fun and 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 I I did an, a relatively decent impression of them and and it, it it got a response and it got people interested and got people reacting and to the point that when I would stand up and do a hist- uh, 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 and read an essay in front of the class in the future people immediately were like, can Martin go first? You know, can he go first? Because yeah. we know he's going to do something weird and, and off the wall. <laughs> hey, Wavel, check it out. My dinosaur is horny. <laughs> Get it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like your move or something? <laughs> Bugs are cool. <laughs> I understand yeah. the criticism of reference jokes, but at the same time, I think when a reference joke works really well and connects with somebody, and Mystery Science Theater 3000, going back to that, a lot of those jokes are just, uh, they're responding to something that happened in the movie, often with like a reference to another movie, like they'll quote a movie or something, uh, or do an impression of a character from a different movie mm-hmm. reacting to that. And I think when those jokes are done well, there's nothing like that. That like You can say that it's lazy writing, and I understand that sometimes right. it is, but I think when a great reference happens, 
and and you as a viewer realize that the person telling the joke has had this exact same experience that you have and and filed it away and and presented it to you like when you were ready for it and when you were like you, you didn't necessarily expect it but you, you, as a result of hearing it you laugh sometimes 10 times more than you would have if you just if somebody just told a regular joke uh, i think especially with Yu-Gi-Oh abridged uh, definitely in the earlier episodes I think sometimes the whole thing was a reference joke. Hey, there was a video inside the package. I just hope it's not one of those cursed videotapes that are all the rage these days. Seven days. Oh, snap, I knew it. Because right, a lot of the time, seven days the, the humor that you could find within the first several episodes of, of Yu-Gi-Oh! Bridged was, I thought that exact same thing too when I was watching Yu-Gi-Oh! You know, I, right? Yeah, yeah. Like your your hair has to be this ridiculous to enter things like that. Yeah, like like you, you you connect with that because you're like, oh yeah, that's that's the same exact experience I had when watching it. So a lot of the time, I, when I do, when I'm not writing a reference joke, certainly back in the day, I'm still expecting the viewer to have uh, have thought these things already. Otherwise, I think it wouldn't be nearly as funny. Another influence I had was uh, Space Ghost Coast to Coast. I know we mentioned C-Lab, and that's certainly uh, an ex extension of that. But Space Ghost, more than anything... You want a piece of me? Well, come get some! Ow! Like, just the concept behind it, it definitely uh, stuck with me. Because you take these established characters, and you don't change them necessarily, but you make them exaggerations of who they are. Uh, like, Space Ghost, Zorak, and Maltar... They definitely didn't behave like that in the original show, but I could see them doing the things that they did in right. Space Coast, you know? Yeah, so, yeah. So so when I made Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged, uh, I definitely had a similar feeling in mind. I, I, a lot, like, it's almost like, what are these people like when the cameras aren't rolling? You know, what what, what do they mm -hmm. think when, when they're presented with this this script for the show? Like, how, how are they going to behave if... if if, if they were to sit there in a meeting and be like, wait, I have to do this. Well, this is how I feel about doing that. And then I would write that as dialogue in the show. You know, like when Yami says, wait, did you just summon a bunch of monsters? Like, I don't even think that in the original Yu-Gi-Oh! episode, he did summon the blue eyes all in one turn. But when I wrote the script, I was like, well, Yami Yugi would call him out on that. So that mm -hmm. ultimately became what, you know, the, is the... I guess the classic exchange of dialogue with the the screw the rules I have money being the punchline which Wait a minute, did you just summon a bunch of monsters in one turn? Yeah, so that's against the rules, isn't it? Screw the rules, I have money. I didn't even think was a funny joke at the time, but apparently it connected with a lot of people because just because I don't think Kaiba I, I think Kaiba is the kind of person who would say that, you know? I I think yeah. people enjoy that line because they can imagine him really saying that. I heard an interview uh, where somebody and one of the questions they asked you was, how do you come up with all these catchphrases? Uh, and I remember listening to that and thinking, God, what a dumb question. But then I was really, really curious to what your answer would be to that, because I think, um, yeah, I had friends in high school who would who watched Yu-Gi-Oh! Bridge uh, and these people were not abridgers. They didn't know about abridging or the scene or YouTube or anything like that. They were just people who wanted to watch funny videos and you were providing and they would repeat these catchphrases. They would say things like, uh, screw the rules, I have money, or in America, you know, things like that. And they'd say to, it was almost like a secret password to a club, the club of people who knew about this thing. 
And it was a way to bond and connect with other people who, who are interested in the same things. Um, and I don't mean to make something big out of something small, but the memes that get spread, they really are unique and special. And I, I don't think people really understand or appreciate the value as communication tools that they are. Uh, so I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on that. Um, they, I mean, it's definitely surprising. Uh, I definitely, yeah. like I, like you said, Screw the Rules was always just intended to be just his response to what Yami Yugi had said. And, and yeah, yeah, I knew it was funny, but I didn't think I'd still be hearing people saying it to me like <laughs> 10 years later. Um, right. But I, I, like you say, it, it is an important thing uh, as far as uh, interacting with other people of similar interests go. Uh, I I would do the same thing, uh, like I, we talked about in the IRC chat, when my quotes would be entered into a, a bot, uh, and it would be regurgitated into the the chat when people would prompt it, and uh, then people would do like variations on those quotes and would call back to them. It's basically like just having an old friend where you have a running joke with them uh, on, right, a, on yeah, a larger scale. Joke. Yeah, it's 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 a lot like that. And and the first one I was really conscious of, I suppose, uh, because. Uh, this this was all the character was was the uh, the, the attention duelists guy uh, when he showed up in uh, episode th- uh, three of Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged and, and, and in the original show he he stands on this boat and he calls out to this large crowd of, crowd of people and says attention. attention all duelists welcome to this event sponsored by Industrial Illusions and uh, I I watched the episode and I think I maybe like re- reviewed the episode a couple of times. Uh, at the time just to see if I missed anything and every time I heard him say that it just got funnier to me and and so I just <laughs> I would just start repeating it to myself and being like ah oh, tension duelists and uh, it just became something that you know I, it, it was something I was quoting already so I was like every time this guy shows up he has to begin his his lines with attention duelists if you can all stop staring at my hair for a moment, you'll see that Pegasus's castle is just behind me. Please follow the unnecessarily long staircase to meet your host. It doesn't matter if anything he says after that is funny. It's just funny that he is always addressing a large group of people, even when there's only like two or three people there. Attention, duelists! My hair is assaulting you! So that was the first time I was conscious of putting one in there. And the next time I think that I was aware of it was uh, Bandit Keith saying, in America. Hey, what are you doing? Asking for help's illegal. In America. And the interesting thing about that one is uh, I didn't know if he was going to keep doing that. But I, I knew that in that one scene where he was introduced... It was funny because he was so brazenly just an American caricature yeah. that the, yeah. jo- the joke <laughs> itself was that this is clearly not the way people behave or, or dress or, right. or, or act. So uh, the fact that I was uh, lampshading it like that, that was the joke. You know, it wasn't so much that he had a catchphrase. It was just look at how like uh, 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 how just amplified his Americanness is. This is funny. Mm-hmm. These sunglasses sure make it difficult to see in the dark, but I refuse to take them off because I'm an American, and Americans always wear sunglasses. Now it's time for my favorite Shakespeare quote. Alas, poor Yorick, I knew him in America. I don't know. If, 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 he still had character going on, but he just also happened to have this catchphrase and got people dressing as Bandit Keith. It got people talking about Bandit Keith and it got people having a good time. It got people who had watched the show. It, like you say, it gave them a way of recognizing other people who had also watched this show and enjoyed this character. And, 
you know, if, if it's two words, it's two words at the yeah. end of the day. And I don't think well, it-, it gets so big to where not acknowledging it becomes the more, I, I guess, like contrived yeah. uh, position to take on that. Yeah, absolutely. Like if, if you have if you strike gold and I'm not going to say that in America is like comedy gold or anything, but if you strike right, no. gold for yeah. the fans of the show, I, right. I, I think people just enjoy that. I think it, uh, I used to. I mentioned Chris and Ashok earlier as the friends I had in grammar school. And one thing we would do together is we'd sit in front of the TV and we'd mute the TV and we'd, we'd, we'd quote unquote dub over it. And, uh, <laughs> and they would say things that would make me crack up. I, I would die laughing at certain like just random asides that they would have. And I'd come into school the next day and we'd say these lines to each other just without any context. And we'd laugh and we, we just, we, we bonded over it. And I think that's what, a, a, that's the great thing about a catchphrase because yeah you can say oh that character is just a catchphrase but at the same time catchphrases exist for a reason mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a communal bonding experience you're, you're connecting with people who you have no idea who they are you don't need to know anything about them but the fact that you have this in common makes you feel like you're not alone i mean a meme ultimately is just something that is repeated and a catchphrase is exactly the same mm-hmm. it's exactly the same yeah, there, uh, there, there are lots of things like that. And uh, really, the thing that makes it so special is the connection with other people, not even necessarily the thing itself, just the fact that you, exactly. you have that, that in common with other people. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, very, I'm very grateful to have, have given people that, even indirectly, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Ah, it's time for another break. First, we'll look at the future of humanity, and then we will look at Little Gribble's writing process for his abridged cartoon parody on the internet. (laughs) The great 18th century French mathematician, Pierre Simon Laplace, once said, you want me to predict everything? Fine. Tell me everything. You think about the kind of techniques we're going to have soon, and you see that with data mining and electronic agents and knowledge mapping, we're going to be quite close to what Laplace is talking about, maybe within our lifetime, or certainly yours. With the ability to know what's going on at the science, technology, social interface, and to predict outcomes across a range and at a level of detail, orders of magnitude greater than ever before, and what we might able be able to do with that will alter the process of innovation itself. That's fine, except of course, in the short term after that, we're still left with the question, as everybody out there gets the technology and they're able to do what we can do, how will we keep our markets? How will we keep our jobs? How will we keep our standard of living? Well, I think most people agree that in the face of this short term problem, diminishing Western support for pure research needs to be reversed. Because ultimately, that's the kind of research that has in the past created entirely new markets. In the 19th century, people laughed at Scots physicist James Dewar when he kept a bubble uh, inflated for for three years. Uh, The net result of Dewar's noodling with surface tension was cling the film and the entire packaging industry. The double helix of DNA was revealed by somebody who was noodling with coal crystals. Electricity came out of studies of magnetism. Now, the negative reaction to funding blue sky research like that is often expressed, what use is it? But as Benjamin Franklin once said, when somebody said about the new hot air balloons the French were flying, what use are they? He said, what use is a newborn baby? 
Put together pure research with knowledge maps and data mining and electronic agents, and you have another intriguing possibility with regard to keeping up in the innovation economy. You might be able to go beyond innovation to some kind of innovation template. Now, I suggest this because back in the 40s, the great American mathematician Norbert Wiener said, change comes, most of all, from the unvisited no-man's land between the disciplines, between the silos. Knowledge webs make available and accessible the no-man's land between different fields and encourage collaboration. That's the job of knowledge webs. So could it be that knowledge mapping might facilitate interdisciplinary initiatives that would be able to help people break out of the old silos, more readily cross the barriers between one area of expertise and another, or one agency and another, make redundant the old reductionist turf wars that prevented different agencies and disciplines from sharing what they knew. It's no risky new exercise. We've done it before, but back then we did it by accident. I mean, in the early 20th century, in the no man's land between physics and botany came molecular biology. But those things happened in a relatively empty and slow world. world. Today, there's no time anymore for that kind of serendipitous approach. The ripple effects of change are now so complex, so interactive, so global, we can no longer afford to leave innovation entirely to accident of circumstances. Don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting some kind of discredited, centralised government control over innovation. That approach only ever worked in the world of the past when we all lived under mushroom-growing governance. You know, keep them in the dark and feed them a load of horse manure. But with predictive access and virtual testing environments and agent-mediated direct social and political involvement by every member of a knowledge web-educated community, we might be able to rethink those backward-looking institutions. We might be able to go beyond leaving social decisions to the over-simple ideologies of so-called leaders, to go beyond the crude win-or-die strategy of the marketplace. Above all, to revise the old idea that innovation only happens with specialist knowledge on a big scale, with big bucks. With the kind of information coming soon to a brain near you, that may no longer be true anymore. But we need to move fast if we are to prepare, because as Yogi Berra said, the future isn't what it used to be. Seymour Butts? <laughs> Anyone here Seymour Butts? <laughs> that was cool. <laughs> Excuse me, but y'all call this a restaurant? I drive up to the window, order my large fries, pie, and a large coffee just like I do every Thursday afternoon before I go to the foot doctor, and I'm waiting out there 20 minutes. Hey, you look kind of familiar. You ain't the kids that spray-painted my dog last week, are you? Uh, that was, uh, other kids. <laughs> I think initially, in the first episode, I didn't really have a process. Uh, I, uh, I just started writing, and then I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just do an abbreviation of this scene, and then when I'm done with that, I'll do an abbreviation of the next scene, and I'll, I'll mm -hmm. write as little as possible, and then when it's done, I'll record it. I, I, I think I did that whole first episode in the space of an evening, and you can tell, and, and I think that's, again, part of the charm. I started having a process for it, I think around episode five or six, 
I would I would watch the episode and I I would uh, I'd turn it off and I I'd, I'd shut it down and I would just sit in front of a, a notepad uh, file and I would just write down like uh, Yugi meets Mako Tsunami Mako Tsunami uh, throws his spear at Yugi. Uh, and then, and then I'd, I, I, I just do each thing as a bullet point, and, and sometimes, well, I, that's a bad example actually, because in that, I, I just eschewed the whole episode and just had them leave. But um, <laughs> I, I, I would, I would just take all of the important bullet points because I, I've, I've, I've changed the way I do things recently. But back in the day, that's all I really felt I had to do because I, I was. I wasn't so much writing a show about the characters as I was just writing a parody of the episode itself. And so I felt right. like the episode was the character and the episode that that was the character that I had to think of as a, as the one presenting the dialogue. Uh, I've gotten a lot of criticism and I understand the criticism, but, but I also think it's, it's a strength in some ways that I don't, re- uh, especially in the older episodes, I didn't really write good dialogue uh, because I was just sort of writing down what I thought about the episode. I just sort of was, right. I was letting the characters say things that I was thinking and anybody could have said anything and it, it, it wouldn't have felt out of place. Uh, so as a result of writing it that way with the bullet points and then just tying everything together with jokes, I, I think it, it definitely suffered, but it was a good structure for me as a writer uh, just to get my, my thoughts out there and my, and, and, and just to, just have any semblance of structure uh and and at the end of the day we've talked about it but that was this was the first version of an abridged series that as far as i know really existed there had been other anime parodies absolutely but i don't think anybody had make a made a concerted effort to tell the the chronological story of a show as a parody uh, right as a series of videos that in a linear sense you know i i Mm -hmm. mean you could you could argue that like like we said c lab space ghost they were definitely parodies of those shows but they weren't telling the same story Mm -hmm. i was trying to tell the same story but with these these joke versions of the characters So when you have these comedy fan dubs, which is what they are really, a bridge series aside, there are basically three major skills that go into it. There's voice acting, video editing, and comedy writing. Um, so I, I would, uh, I'd be curious to hear how you rank those in order of, of importance and, and, uh, and just your own comfort with them and uh, sort of expand on that a little bit. I do get asked a lot about this. Uh, uh, well, not this specifically, but the question I get asked usually is what equipment do you use to make the show? And and I'll tell them, but then I'll say the most important piece of equipment you can have is a script. Uh, that's ultimately all I brought to the table with a Yu-Gi-Oh! Right. Bridged in the first place. I think that the voice acting was definitely bad. Uh, the video mm-hmm. editing was atrocious, but the script, the script was, I mean, it wasn't great, but it, it was what it, what, it was what it should have been. And it was, it, it is, I think what brought people to it. Yeah. And, and yeah, I ultimately, that's why I think when we talked about fan fiction earlier, I think there is such a strong association with that is because ultimately it's what I wrote that people responded to. And you could read that. I, th- I believe personally, you could read that written down. And I think you could even have as strong a reaction to it 
just reading it to yourself and hearing the voices in your head uh, that you could from watching those episodes specifically. Um, and I think that's still true to an extent these days that the script is the most important thing because you can you can dress up a bad script as best you can with great voice acting and great editing. It won't save it. You can you can save bad voice acting and bad video editing with a great script. I don't think yeah. it goes the other way. Um, mm-hmm. So always script, in my opinion. And and a lot of people do say to me, well, well I've written this script, but uh, and the interesting thing to me is like everybody always comes to me and, and they're always working as a group. And, and I, as a writer, I, I've never been able to do that. I've never, like, I, I've tried. It's hard. It's really difficult. I, I, I feel yeah. the way I am as a person in general, I... Man, if I if I had been working with a group on the first episode of Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged, it probably would have never gotten made. Yeah. You know, I I, I probably would have... Ne- and it certainly wouldn't have been the script that was released. It would have been very different. I don't know if it would have been better or worse, but it would have been very different. So uh, at, the, at the end of the day, I, I try and tell these people, as a group, you're never always all going to be happy with it. You're always going to have some people, or if it's a two-person thing, one of you is never going to be completely happy both of you probably aren't going to be completely happy with it but the important thing is to if if it's done and if you if you think you've done as much work on it as possible just to make it present it and then make the next video and then see what you can improve on from there uh because at the end of the day nobody's ever happy with what they put out yeah. i don't think nobody's ever 100 percent happy especially writing wise yeah uh you can you can look at a video and see the flaws and understand how to correct them you can't always look at a script and know exactly what went wrong and how to fix that next time yeah but you have to still continue you have to still write and 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 work f- you have to con- you have to continue working unless you've completely lost all passion for the project you have to finish you have to have the script put it out there as a video and then write the next one because otherwise yeah. what, what what have you learned from this what what have you gotten out of this you've just wasted everybody's time right Next, Little Karibo talks about his early childhood, his struggles with connecting to others and being bullied, and then about the impact of Yu-Gi-Oh! Abridged and who he has to thank for it. Today, probably, you're a bit anxious. Maybe about some work you have to finish, people you have to see, some chores you've neglected. Anxiety often appears to be about particular things, promising us that if only they can be overcome, we'll reach a stage of long-lasting serenity and security. But really, if we're frank about how we function, the problem really seems larger and more fundamental. Beyond any specific thing we happen to be worrying about, looked at over time, we're simply anxious, to our core, in the very basic makeup of our being. Though we may focus day-to-day on this or that particular worry creating static in our minds, what we're really up against is anxiety as a permanent feature of life, something irrevocable, existential, dogged, and responsible for ruining a dominant share of our brief time on Earth. The single most important move is to accept that we'll always be anxious. There's no need on top of everything else to be anxious that we're anxious. The mood is no sign that our lives have gone wrong, merely that we're alive. So we should be more careful when pursuing things we imagine will spare us anxiety. We can pursue them by all means, but for other reasons than fantasies of calm, and with perhaps a little less vigour and a little more scepticism. 
We should also spare ourselves the burden of loneliness. We're far from the only ones with this problem. Everyone's more anxious than they're inclined to admit. Even the tycoon and the couple in love are suffering. We've collectively failed to admit to ourselves what we truly like. We should learn to laugh about our anxieties. Laughter being the exuberant expression of relief when a hitherto private agony is given a well-crafted social formulation in a joke. And lastly, we should hug. Not the forced intimacy of most modern hugs, but the melancholy, sympathetic way Botticelli's angels do it, having come down to earth to offer comfort to humans for the brute facts of earthly existence. We must suffer alone, but we can at least hold out our arms to our similarly tortured, fractured, and above all else, anxious neighbours, as if to say, in the kindest way possible, I know. Where I grew up, uh, it was a place called Nutsford in England, mm-hmm. and uh, th- it was known for just being the sort of the, the middle point between where you wanted to actually go. Uh, <laughs> it was a, a sort of a crossroads. It was a very small town. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I went to I I, I was very uh, I was very attached to my family and my parents specifically. Uh, I didn't really make many friends. Uh, I, I I tried really hard to be entertaining for people in my in my school class. You know when when I would uh, be asked to speak or when I would uh, you know what I would present something for you know our equivalent of of show and tell. But aside from just trying to make people laugh and trying to endear myself to people that way, I never really went out of my way to really um, you know have any kind of one on one conversations with a lot of people. The, the few friends I did have. Uh, didn't really know me as a, as a person all that mm-hmm. well. Like the, it, it was just somebody that we we talked to because we sat next to each other, right, right. Uh, at school. So I never really bonded super close with with anybody uh, as a child. And as a result, I spent a lot of my time by myself. Uh, I spent a lot of time watching television, playing video games, and uh, so that that's how a, a lot of my my social life was. It just I just sort of was by myself. And things just happened around me. And if occasionally people would, you know, uh, enter the little bubble that I had around me and we'd have a conversation and then they'd go and I would be like, okay, back to my own thing. Um, my parents, uh, they've always loved me. And, and I've, always, I've, I've always been aware of the fact that they love me. And, and we're, we're all, I'm very close with my mother because my dad spent a lot of time, uh, he, was a, he was a truck driver. He, uh, he, he delivered milk to different parts of the country and he would be gone uh, I'd say eight to ten hours of the day, and then he'd return very mm-hmm. late at night, and I'd barely, I'd barely see him. He's very quiet, very. Uh, he keeps himself to himself a, a lot more than my mum does. My mum's very vocal, very emotional, and very. She's uh, she definitely um, she's passionate, and she definitely goes out of her way to to make her intentions known. And she make she she was made no bones about the fact that she cared a lot about me and wanted the best for me. And my dad just sort of was very passive and uh, he was just sort of, a lot of the time, I, I hate to say it, in the background. Um, hmm. And I think I take after my dad a lot more uh, as a person than I, than I realized that, that that I do for a lot, for a long time. Uh, but I'm, I'm also, I, I've inherited a lot of like those passionate feelings and, and like, 
like the the idea of being invested in something a lot that my mum does. Like my mum is the kind of person that you know she she uh, she'll remember something that's really important to her ten years down the line. Uh, you know, like like and I'll do the same thing uh, if if something means something to me, then it still means something to me. You know, several years later. Um, sentimental. Yeah, yeah, definitely sentimental. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. uh, but like I said, as a, as a person and the way I interact with people, I'm I'm very much like my dad. I'll drift off for several hours and then I'll return on be like, hi guys, I'm back. Uh, like I said, Nutsford was definitely like sort of the middle of nowhere. Uh, I went to primary school in Nutsford. When I realized after leaving primary school and going to my uh, the, the grammar school that I ended up going to, I went to Manchester Grammar, which is one of the top schools in the country. And I was, I was very proud of getting into that. And I was able to make a couple of friends there uh, but th- the really sad thing is that I, I didn't make them so much as they they were told by their parents to talk to me because I think my my mum, when she went to like the parents' evening uh, initially to meet with the other parents in the in the class, uh, she talked about how difficult it was for me to socialize. And so I think a couple of parents uh, went to their kids and were like, you have to talk to this Martin guy because it sounds like he's not going to have a very good time of it. And these other kids, uh, Ashok and Chris, uh, they came up to me, uh, I think, in like within the first month at least, and were like, "Hi, you're Martin, right?" And I was like, "Yeah." And they were like, "Well, my mom says I should talk to you." And I was like, "Okay." And so, <laughs> as a result of that, we we got to talking, and we and we did share some things in common. Uh, we both we we all liked uh, cartoons and books and stuff, right, and right. Uh, so we just we just sort of arbitrarily hung out. But it, they were they were really tight friends with me for for a good long time. But they were my only friends, you know. Right. They they were the only people I felt comfortable talking to because I just I have this block and I think it's always been there where I can't instigate you know a a friendly conversation with somebody where it's a blank slate you know anything could go wrong anything could anything could happen when I when I say hello to this person so what why why risk you know making yourself look like an idiot in front of them so I've always sort of had to wait for them to to broach the subject of friendship so it sounds like um you, you struggled a little bit with anxiety as a kid I, yeah, I, I I definitely did without uh, really knowing what it was. I think mm-hmm. I I I don't think it was uh, as um, extensive as it's gotten in in right. later life. But I definitely had uh, issues where if an idea cropped up in my head that something could go wrong, it would just grow and grow until it was this completely insurmountable thing. I remember actually uh, being too afraid to get on the bus to go home sometimes i i am also embarrassed to admit and uh and and this is something that comes to me a lot uh in regards to certainly education and just the way my life has gone but i did i did end up dropping out of of the grammar school in my fifth year uh because uh i was actually i was pretty intensely bullied and um i didn't know how to handle it and the school didn't know how to handle it. Mm-hmm. And and ultimately, I don't think anybody really knows how to stop bullying. I don't know how you stop that from happening because it's right. just part of, of the way people are, you know. Especially children because they don't have a yeah. concept of how their, their behavior affects other people like adults do. Exactly. I don't, I don't think anybody could have stopped it permanently. And to me and to my parents, my mum especially, uh, that was uh, a problem that they couldn't overlook. And as a result, uh, I ended up just dropping out of school because the option was presented to me uh, where I could drop out of, I could, I could 
go home and just come back in for the exams at the end of the year and avoid everything in between and try and study at home. Or I could stay in school and they could keep an eye on me and that was all they could promise to do. And at the end of the day, I just, I, I had to, just the way, the, the state I was in and the, unfortunately, the, the naive mindset that I had, I was like, if this is the only way to avoid being bullied permanently, then I'm gonna, I'm just gonna leave. find it really interesting it was like here's this guy you know uh, a loner and and somebody who 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 felt isolated but you made such a huge splash on uh online and 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 in the anime community i don't know what what, how do you think about that when you do think about it when i do think about it um i i it doesn't feel real it really doesn't feel real at all it it doesn't feel like it's something i've done i I, I, I often say, you know, I, I, I wouldn't be, I, I, and we talked about it earlier, I'm very lucky to have had a lot of the chances that I've had as a result of this stuff, that the abridged series and everything. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, if I hadn't had the support of other fans, if I hadn't had uh, other, I made no attempt to promote the show. Uh, except to post it on YouTube and then link to it on one live journal community that I think had maybe 50 people on it. Right. And that was all I did. That's all I did. And and those people, uh, the fans of Yu-Gi-Oh!, who I consider myself to be one of, I still do to this day, those people took it and they told their friends and they and those friends told other friends and it just spread. And uh, it, it it's because of fans in general that, that this happened it's not just because of me mm-hmm. it's not any one thing i did i don't think any one thing that i did was all that special i think i just did something that a lot of people had already done mm-hmm. and uh, i was in the right place at the right time and i had i picked a word i picked the word abridged because it made sense yeah and um and people took it and they responded to it and uh they continue to respond to it uh, not necessarily just to my stuff, but to the, the the concept that was introduced by this that allowed people to express their love, uh, their fandom, and uh, their creativity as mm-hmm. uh, uh, through this. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it snowballed and it grew because people were passionate and because people felt similarly. And Yeah, if, I think that's... And that's an interesting point because a lot of times people look at, you know, like Little Karibo or they look at Team Four Star and they see people who they, they imagine are larger than life, even though – because at this point, the uh, the audience for these things have grown to such an enormous size. It's so much larger than it used to be back in 2007, 2008. Uh, and so it, it can be tempting to look at the people who – are, are big figures in this in this scene and sort of think of them as, as uh, almost celebrities in a way. But at the same time, it's like these things wouldn't be what they are without the audience. The audience is the most is- crucial element to the I mean, it goes it goes without saying to the size of the of the of the viewers. But really, the the, the thing itself is a response to those viewers. Like if it weren't for them, they are more than 50% of what these are, of Yu-Gi-Oh! Bridge, of Dragon Ball Z Bridge, and of all these uh, different fan productions. Exactly. I I, I said it earlier. I saw, I, I posted the episode, mm-hmm. and I saw a reply to it saying, you should make more of these. And that's exactly what they said. They said, you should make more of these. And if it wasn't for the encouragement of one 
person, I don't even know who they were. If it wasn't for the encouragement of another person who loved Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, who, who, saw, who saw what I did and enjoyed it and wanted more, if it wasn't for that person, I would have stopped. Yeah. I would have just stopped. I would have probably done some other stupid uh, video about I probably would have taken a clip from Borat and put it over a Yu-Gi-Oh episode. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I, that's what I would have done, and I would have moved on, and nothing would have happened. But because somebody, somebody under like somebody had recognized what I had done and and enjoyed it, and just wanted to encourage more of it, that that's why we are talking about this right now. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's really it's fans, uh, people know? people don't give enough credit to the audience. In a way. Exactly. I, I, I would not be who I am as a person without the encouragement of the audience and the love that people have for uh, Yu-Gi-Oh! and for um, just fan creations in general. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the show today. I recorded with Little Karibo for a long time, and I have even more that I didn't include in this episode, so you can expect a part two whenever I get around to making it. I want to thank Martin for coming on the show and for lending his voice in an upcoming project of mine. Details on Twitter. Follow me at Inagata where I am not going to post anything political. I know, weird, right? Who does that these days? Little Karibo actually doesn't either, and a lot of us could follow his example. I want to thank the listeners for listening to the whole show. After getting a surge of YouTube views from my recent collaboration with Team Four Star, I faced a wave of minor criticisms, so I've tried to take that all into account for this episode. So let me know how I did. Man, I love this background music. I love it. It's so layered. It has so many amazing sounds coming at you from every direction. Some of it sounds like porn music. Isn't that weird that we have music for porn? Anyway, that's off topic. The music is from the soundtrack to Space Adventure Cobra, one of my all-time favorite anime. It's from 1982. If you never heard of it, check it out. It's like James Bond meets Mega Man plus Star Wars. And, uh, yeah, I've got more shit to recommend to you. This is uh, the recommendation for further listening. You can listen or watch this. It's uh, James Burke's Connection TV series. Uh, the original series with the hour-long episodes from 1972 is currently unavailable on the internet entirely. It's been stripped from YouTube. But the later series, Connections 2 and Connections 3, are still on YouTube, so I'm going to link you to one from Connections 2 about bright ideas. Connections is, is an amazing, it's one of my all-time favorite shows ever made by human beings. You'll learn more about the world in one episode of Connections than in any other like education, entertainment-style show that I can think of. And depending on if you even like that kind of stuff, it's highly entertaining and engaging. It's really strange to me how obscure it is. I I know for a fact it had an enormous impact on popular scientists like uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy and Neil deGrasse Tyson. They both adopted part of Burke's presentation style on their television shows like uh, Bill Nye the Science Guy and uh, Cosmos with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Yeah, the, the Cosmos remake. Um, yeah, they both adopted part of his presentation style. You'll see for yourself when you listen to it or watch it. It's a, this is a segment about a man who used that period of time where we're half awake, half asleep, right before we fall asleep, used it on purpose to try to generate new ideas. And he actually created something, uh, an invention that changed the entire world. And we wouldn't be living the way we do today if it weren't for him. It's, it's amazing. So give it a listen. It's really good stuff. 
Meet John Wilkinson, who had his bright ideas while he was asleep. Keep your eye on the ball. Here he is, dreaming of a bright idea. And here he is... ...waking himself up to do something about it. Ah, well, it takes all sorts. The particular bright idea happening up there is the one he had in 1774 to upgrade the Smeaton Borer by rotating solid iron rolls against a steel cutting head and scooping out the centre of the roll all the way through to make incredibly precise cylinders. Without which, James Watt's steam engine would not have worked and the entire Industrial Revolution would not have happened. Ah, he's gone back to sleep. Wilkinson was the hottest iron maker there ever was. Built the first iron boat, coined his own money, invented rifling for rifles, made all the iron pipes for the great Paris waterworks. And had himself buried in a cast iron coffin three times. Well before which his greatest scam in spite of the fact that we Brits are at war with France, Wilkinson manages to smuggle to Napoleon the other thing you can make with a cylinder borer, cannon barrels, to fight wars all over Europe with. If you like this podcast, there are several ways you can support it. Leave a comment and a like on YouTube, on iTunes, leave a rating and a review, and of course, share it with friends. If you'd like to send me an email about the show, the address is kindsoundwaves at gmail.com. Hey everybody, Chicken Wings here. A lot of you are wondering um, why there's no certain intro for this special interview. But aside from that, um, before we get into the interview, I just want to say that when I was first talking to Lil Caribo, he, he, was, he was a completely normal person, and I was very surprised about this. Because you would think he would be the type of person to be really um, shy away from most people because the whole fan base and all that stuff. But once I got to know Lil Caribo a little bit more, he became just like any ordinary person. He loves video games, some good movies, mostly based off of sci-fi type stuff like Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica, um, Star Wars, and the list can go on, but it was really a huge honor to interview this one individual.